Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, carrying on our continuing conversation about practical issues related to ministry leadership. I want to talk with you today about stepping away from the edge. As a leader, you can drift. You can drift in your moral commitments, in your ethical choices. You can drift in your tolerance for certain behaviors in yourself. You can drift. And without even realizing it, you can walk right up to the edge of disaster. And sadly, step over the line before you even realize what you've done. Step away from the edge. Come back from the risky places you find yourself. Now, the question is, first of all, how can you recognize when you're drifting? How can you recognize when your thinking is changing, sometimes even subtly, so that you're drifting toward behaviors, attitudes, actions that will ultimately be destructive. Well, let me first by first begin with some descriptive statements and some evidence of this kind of drift. And then I want to walk you through a passage of scripture in the book of 1 Peter that's going to help us with correctives. A number of years ago, a man named Calvin Miller wrote a leadership book, and in that book he outlined some evidence that leaders were abusing their positions, drifting in their behaviors, moving toward destructive choices, what I call the edge. So borrowing from Calvin Miller and maybe just changing the language up just a bit to fit maybe more how I might express it. Let me give you these evidences of drift. Number one, we are drifting when we give up the disciplines we still demand of others. We're drifting toward disaster. We're stepping too close to the edge. When we give up the disciplines, we still demand of others. For example, yes, I want people in my church to read the Bible on a regular basis with a goal of reading it daily. But, you know, I just don't have time to do that right now. My, I'm in a really busy ministry season. There's a lot of personal demands. I'm just not able to read the Bible like I advocate for others to do. Same thing with prayer. I believe that people should have the discipline of regular, if not daily, prayer. But, you know, I just can't do that right now. There's just not time to pray. I've just got so many other demands on my schedule. You know, people should give 
in a disciplined way, perhaps with the tithe as a foundation of giving, and then even growing beyond the tithe to be alms givers and offering givers. Well, that's the discipline I expect from most people, but you know, I really can't do that. That's really not something I'm up to right now. Maybe later I'll get to that, but you know, my my time is how I give my tithe. I, I I'm devoted to what I do and and I serve the people and the Lord by giving up my my life. And so I, I really don't feel like the, the giving requirements financially apply to me. You know, in our church, we, we expect people to submit uh, written documentation for expenses, either purchase orders or uh, receipts for expenditures or some kind of uh, documentation that demonstrates where they spent the money and what they used it for. But I think that, that the church ought to just trust me. I mean, I'm a pastor. I'm a leader. Uh, I'm a godly person. I, I would only do what's right and what's best for the church. I'd never take advantage myself. So I just don't feel like all these rules about paperwork really apply to me. Am I cutting close to home yet out there in podcast land? You're drifting when you give up the disciplines that you still demand of others. Disciplines like Bible reading and prayer and giving and accountability. When you don't think the rules apply to you, you're drifting. And you are getting closer and closer to the edge. And tragically, you run the risk of falling over. Here's another one. A second evidence of drift is believing other people owe us whatever we can use them to do. Believing that other people owe us. Well, she's my assistant. That's her job. She's supposed to help me. Well, those are my volunteers in my ministry organization or my ministry assignment, and and they've signed up for this. This is what they should do, and this is what I'm demanding of them. Other people owe us whatever we can make use of them to do. When you develop this attitude that other people owe you, that they're obligated to you, that they are somehow responsible to fulfill your ideals, your wishes, your whims, your pleasures. When you think other people owe you, you're drifting. You are subtly succumbing to the temptation that you are the most important person in the room. The world revolves around you. Everyone else exists to take care of you serve you, meet your needs. If you are believing that other people owe you whatever use you can make of them, (laughs) you're drifting and you'll wind up too close to the edge. Here's a third one. You're drifting if you're trying to fix things up rather than make things right. When you've made a mistake and you refuse to acknowledge it and you keep trying to fix it 
by masking it, by amending it, by explaining or justifying it, rather than just doing what's right. You're drifting. Man, this is so difficult, isn't it? None of us, and I mean none of us, like to admit when we're wrong. We don't like to admit we made a mistake. We don't like to admit that we did something that didn't turn out the way we hoped. And so, rather than just admit it and move on, we try to cover things up rather than make things right. I've learned this lesson over the years, and it's been a revealing one and a gratifying one at the same time. I've been the president of Gateway Seminary for 20 years, and I've made thousands of decisions and gotten many of them right, but not all of them. I have made some egregious mistakes, and when I've made them, I have sometimes been tempted to cover them up. But God has helped me. And most of the time, I'm more transparent, more honest, more frank in my assessment, and I simply tell our board of trustees the truth. Here's what we did. Here's why I did it. And here's what we need to do to correct it. When I first started admitting things weren't perfect, no one was surprised because, frankly, my followers, and in this case my board, already knew I wasn't perfect. When I first started being willing to publicly admit that I had made mistakes, own them, and then try to explain how we would make them right rather than just sort of fix things up. I was really gratified and, frankly, somewhat surprised at the response. People are generally very forgiving of a leader who will make things right rather than just try to fix things up. I remember one very clear example when I went to my board chairman and said, listen, this is what I've done. This is the mistake I've made. This is why I did it. And this is what I think we need to do going forward. And he smiled and said, sounds good. I said, now, what, what, wait, it, 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 do you understand what I'm saying to you here? How, how, how serious this is? And he said, well, Jeff, it's just not that serious. Because you see what needed to be done and you're going to fix it, we don't really have a problem here. What he was communicating to me was this. The board does not expect perfection from you, but we really do like the transparency. And when we see you admitting your mistakes and committing to move forward to make them right, we're satisfied that you're a good leader. Good leaders are not perfect leaders. They're transparent, honest leaders with integrity. Man, that was an important lesson for me that day. Because quite frankly, I can tell you that in my first years of ministry leadership, 
I was so insecure and so afraid to admit a mistake that I spent a lot of time trying to cover my tracks, cover my mistakes, frankly, cover for myself so that no one would find out what I had really done. That kind of duplicity will take you to the edge. You'll, you're drifting. You're drifting away from the kind of transparent integrity, holiness God wants you to have. Well, we're still working on Calvin Miller's list, uh, amended by me or uh, added to by me. A fourth evidence that you're drifting that you're misusing your position, your power, your place. You're drifting when you close your minds to the suggestion that you just might be wrong. One of the hardest things for followers to do is to confront a leader and to say to him or her, you're wrong on this. And while that's very difficult, what's even harder is for a leader to say, huh, you just might be right. Let me think about that. Or even to go beyond that and say, man, thanks for having the courage to point that out. You're, you're right. I, I, I am wrong about this. But I've been around people who had their minds closed to any suggestion that they might be wrong that they might just be off base, off step, out of line. When you feel that way, you have encapsulated yourself in a cocoon of arrogance that will eventually destroy you. You're drifting. Again, too close to the edge. And then finally, you're drifting as a leader when you believe people in your way are expendable. When you believe that people are to be used. So it doesn't matter who you fire or who you belittle or who you put down. It doesn't matter how you treat people. It doesn't matter what their goals are, what their aspirations are, what they're trying to be or accomplish in their lives. It doesn't matter about all that. All that matters is you. You getting ahead, you getting your way, you getting your goals accomplished, your way. That's all that really matters. If you look good, you feel good, you got what you want, you receive the accolades, you come out on top, it really doesn't matter what happened to anybody else. When you are thinking this way, you're drifting. You're drifting toward the edge. You're drifting toward disaster. What I've observed among leaders for 40 years now is that leaders who step over the edge into destructive, disastrous behavior Seldom make that leap like a broad jump in the Olympics. That's not how it happens. No. Instead, they're like a boat adrift on the tide, just slowly 
incrementally, almost imperceptibly, drifting, drifting, drifting. Until that boat suddenly disappears over the horizon. Lost. Look, if you're a leader today, you have to be vigilantly on guard, making sure that your life, your attitude, your choices, your relationships, your moral and ethical standards, and your personal commitments remain pure, holy, transparent, without guile, and with integrity. This is a perpetual challenge, a lifelong challenge, a difficult challenge. But nevertheless, it's our goal. It's our responsibility. It's part of our task of leadership to keep ourselves in check so that we're not drifting toward the edge, so that we stay away from the edge, as far back as we can from it, to keep ourselves away from that last tiny step, which leads to destruction or disaster. Now, proactively, how can you do this? Well, fortunately, the Bible addresses this issue in 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter writes a call to holy living, beginning in verse 13, and he says this, Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now let's break this down just for a few minutes. Therefore, with your minds ready for action. This verb means to gird or to prepare. You know, the word gird comes is a verb from which we get the word girdle. A girdle is like a belt. In the ancient world, a soldier would wear a loose-fitting garment, more like a woman's dress than a pair of pants, but when it came time to do battle, they would reach between their legs, pull that skirt-like material up, and tuck it into the front of their belt or their girdle, then making what would be a baggy pair of shorts they could run in much more efficiently. When the Bible says, prepare your minds for action, it means gird your minds or tuck in the loose things around your minds so that you are ready to move. Look, this verse is saying we have an amazing capacity for self-deceiving thoughts. And as those self-deceiving thoughts settle in our minds, over a period of time, they soon become the truth as we perceive it. A number of years ago, I was working with a church that had a very long-tenured and prominent pastor. This pastor was on a national board of an entity of the Southern Baptist Convention and had, in fact, been selected at one point to be on the search committee for the president of that board. He was not only a, 
on the board. He was a leader on the board. But a circumstance arose in which he was terminated for misusing his church expense account. He was traveling personally, billing the church for the travel, and reporting to the church that he was using the money for professional development conferences, conventions, and other events. When he was terminated, I had a chance to have a conversation with him, and I asked him this question. What happened? Why did you do this? And he said, I felt the church owed it to me. I had worked so hard to be an effective pastor. I felt they owed me these monies to take this time away to do whatever I wanted. That's self-deception. That's thoughts creeping into your mind that become solidified and ultimately justifying to a conclusion that violated everything this pastor had put in place in terms of protocols, procedures, policies, and standards for his own behavior and the behavior of others who were employed by his church. But because he got loose thinking solidified into new reality, he made a catastrophic choice. He stepped over the edge. The first instruction the Bible gives us to prevent this is to develop clear thinking. Tuck in the loose thoughts that start flapping in the breeze and trying to get your attention and tell you to go a different direction. Tuck those back in and say, no, this is clear thinking on this issue based on the Bible and what I know to be true about leadership and life. This is what needs to happen here. Get your thinking straight. Then he goes on to say, this kind of holy living also requires disciplined choices. The next verse phrase says, be sober-minded. Be sober-minded. The word sober calls to mind self-control, meaning that you have no will-influencing substances affecting your choices. In other words, nothing from the outside controls the choices you make about the behaviors of your life. Look, we have an amazing capacity for self-satisfaction in the place of self-control. Frankly, we like what's comfortable. I know that when I leave work every day, I go home and I put on more comfortable clothing than I wear while I'm working all day. And then I find myself faced with a choice. Do I do what is sober-minded and speaks of self-control and go and physically exercise my body? Or do I do what's comfortable? And that is slide right into my recliner, flick on my big screen, and see who's playing what 
with what kind of ball? (laughs) Self-control. The Bible says we're responsible to think soberly without anything influencing our will from the outside to make right choices based on our true moral and ethical values. Sober-minded. So, we're to practice clear thinking and disciplined choices. And then there's a third one. The next phrase says, set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That word set means to fix or fixate your hope, which means to stare it down. Now, this focused hope is on Jesus Christ and on his return. One of the reasons that we make bad choices that incrementally lead us to the edge is we make choices made on our feelings. Our hopes are not set on the grace of God demonstrated in Jesus. No, our hopes are instead set on our own feelings. What we hope for, what we wish for, what we desire, what we anticipate might come to be, and how we would feel about all that. This verse says, You'll find greater stability in your thinking and in your uh, and in trusting in your uh, choices. If you have choices and thinking that's stabilized on the hope you have in Jesus, not on your hopes, if you will, or your feelings, or your emotion, or your emotions. You know we have a amazing capacity to be guided by our feelings. We talk about it all the time. How are you feeling today? Or, you know, I just don't feel like doing that today. And feelings, feelings, feelings. And feelings are a good thing until they control us. And then they're not a good thing. I once worked with a business executive, uh, some prominence with a multi-million dollar leadership responsibility, and he had a challenging problem with internet pornography. He was a Christian trying to do what's right, uh, felt shame and disgust because of his habit, but nevertheless, he kept going back to it. Finally, in trying to help him, I asked him this question, is there any pattern to when you find yourself going back to those websites? And he said, actually, there, there is. It's when I feel lonely, empty, Frustrated, unappreciated, stressed. I backed him up and said, let's get to the key word in that sentence. Feel. When you feel lonely or empty or frustrated or unappreciated or stressed, when you feel these things, you're letting your feelings be the source of your decision-making, which leads you to destructive behaviors, which you know are damaging not only you, but your relationship with your spouse and ultimately will undermine your relationships with your children. 
You're doing something that you know is going to take you over the edge. Why? Because you're motivated by your feelings. So the passage is saying this. Clear your thinking. Discipline your choices. Stabilize your emotions. And finally, verse 14. As obedient children do not be conformed to the desires of this former ignorance. In other words, Finally, develop healthy habits. Don't be conformed. Don't be in the habit of doing things the certain way, and in this context, the old way. Don't be molded or shaped, conformed, by what? The desires of your former ignorance, meaning the appetites or lusts of your pre-conversion, pre-Christian lifestyle. In other words, don't fall back into old patterns. Man, that feels good to fall back into old patterns, doesn't it? You know, I've already mentioned I like to go home and slip on more comfortable clothes. I, I'm, I contend that some shirts aren't really broken in and ready to be worn until you've had them about five years. And you're thinking, some of you, that sounds about right. And others of you, especially some of you moms and wives, are thinking, you got to be kidding me? No. No, that's, that's about how long it takes to get a shirt just like you like it. Those old patterns feel really good. Well, that's funny about clothing, but it's not so funny when you're falling into old patterns that begin to lead you down a path that's going to take you a place you never intended to go. Today, pretty serious podcast. I want you to step away from the edge. As a leader, I don't want you to develop a lifestyle that takes you right up to the edge of behaviors that are ultimately going to be destructive, maybe even destroying you. I want you to stay as far back from that edge as possible. Now, how do you get to the edge? Tiny baby steps. Drifting. I started the podcast by borrowing some material from Calvin Miller and amplifying it and saying, here are evidences of drift. If you're thinking these ways, you're drifting toward disaster. How do you stop that? First Peter gives us a recipe. Clear your thinking. Discipline your choices. Stabilize your emotions. Resist old habits. These core, practical, biblical practices will keep us from leadership drift, which takes us to a place we never intended to go. Step away from the edge. Diagnose if you're drifting. Put into practice this biblical instruction of how to change your direction. Do it and do it over and over again as you purposefully endeavor to lead a life of holiness, integrity, that is blameless without guile. Leaders do not walk near the edge. We stay as far away from it as possible. Doing so sustains us over a lifetime as we lead on.